0: We are going to continue our sermon series, uh, People Together with God, and we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. Uh, if you want to turn to that uh, passage, it is in your Red Pew Bibles, page 1130. We're going to be working through basically the whole chapter, so I hope you're not hungry, because lunch will be delayed. Um kidding, it won't be that long. So, there's a many times when uh, I have been at Costco uh, to do, or somewhere in public, this something like this story I'm about to share is uh, happened, right? Uh, you know, I have a bunch of kids, and I've, my, my three little ones, which are six and younger, um, six, four, and two, uh, I love making them laugh because, I mean, who doesn't, right? To hear a child's laugh, it's, it, it's wonderful. And uh, recently in Costco, I was pushing uh, the three little ones in the cart, and one of them started laughing, and it started progressively getting you know increased laughter, and I started really egging it on. And before I knew it, I was like hopping around. I don't know what I was doing, like barking like a dog or something, and they thought it was the funniest thing. And I don't remember how long I was doing it, but I had this like self awareness moment where I'm like, mm, I'm actually like in a public place, and there's people kind of was like doing that, you know? And I was like, Yeah, sorry, I got kids. That was fun. Um, But there was, something happens in those moments, right, like that to where it was my kids' laughter and joy that that caused me to act like a fool in a public place. Uh, I had simply kind of put out of my mind uh, that I was in public and that there were people around and only when I became aware again that I was in a public place underneath other people's eyes... Uh, I suddenly considered the most civilized option was to not hop around embark, and, and make my kids laugh or whatever I was doing. Um, but in reality, perhaps some of the reason why I stopped was that I, I didn't want to look like a total fool in front of people. My children's joy for those moments guided me to do some silly things. And for a while, I didn't care about that, right? There's, there actually is a freedom In that moment, there was a freedom. There was a freedom to act like a fool in Costco. And as we continue our sermon series, "People Together for God," we're going to be looking at a passage where 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 Paul was trying to shepherd his church back into such freedom, but a much greater freedom—freedom that uh, allows Jesus and His acceptance and love for us to provide us really two things as a church. Freedom to no longer live for the opinion of others, but only as faithful servants and stewards of Jesus. And number two, as we live within that freedom, we will discover the spiritual and life-altering power of the kingdom of God in our own lives. Those are two things we will be looking at this morning. And um, let's read just the first few verses here, beginning in chapter four. So then... We're coming in like kind of mid-argument here. Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. In a few moments, we're gonna look at the whole kind of full context of this chapter, but I first just want to make some simple observations here on how Paul defines his role as an apostle and leader of the church in Corinth. He says, people ought to regard us, meaning the apostles, those leaders, as servants of Christ. And to regard us as those entrusted with the secret things of God. The language of servant is like the idea of helper. Um, We had this bookshelf, in my living room recently. It was one of those cheap, like, uh, particle board things that was, you know, wobbling. It was horrible. And um, I braced it up, and I got some wood from our basement and got my son to help me. Do it. That's quite literally the image here, is a helper. The servant image is one of helping that Paul used here. We are servants alongside of a work that is not our own. We're serving a work that is ultimately, um, it doesn't belong to us, we didn't create it, it is the work of God that we are invited to serve into. And what Paul imagined is that God's work is something he is attaching himself to as a helper. Paul's work wasn't his own agenda or focus. Paul, his work was not about Paul. He said, I'm just a servant here. That's it. And secondly, he is a steward entrusted with the mysteries of God. And this imagery is one of an estate manager, someone caring for a household or property that does not belong to them. The mysteries of God have been revealed in Jesus' own life, his death and resurrection. And Paul was entrusted with this message as its steward, with its life and its power and its message. And he continues on, he says in verse 3, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So Paul is speaking as an apostle, and he's applying himself, this all is to himself as a leader, but consider the core here of what he's saying, okay? Paul is saying, I'm here but I'm not here to be judged by you. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. This is not some statement like, don't judge me. You know, have you ever been told that by somebody you're talking to? them? like, don't judge me. I, you know, I grew up in Georgia. It was like a thing that was like always, you know, throughout there, uh, thrown out there. You know, don't judge me. Only God judges me. It's far beyond this, right? It is an astounding statement of Paul, knowing, okay, he knew who Jesus is, and he knew himself in light of Jesus. And again, like the context of this is a, is a divided church, so we'll get into this in a minute, but just consider how this doesn't just apply to you, but to all of us here as a congregation. These are the two questions Paul tackles, Right? Uh, that will guide most of our time today. So a question I have really quick here is, are you free of other people's opinion of you? I want that to sit just for a minute. Are you free of other people's opinion of you? Meaning, do you treat other people's judgment of you as if it has some kind of authority, almost divine authority that is imposing on you that you must respond to and, and shape your life after? Those people's opinions. This was the issue here. This church had an opinion of Paul. And he's saying, I don't care. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Your judgment of me, it doesn't actually matter. Because it's the Lord who judges me. He is my authority in this matter. I'm just a helper, I'm just a servant, I'm just a steward of what was given to me. I'm just called to be faithful. That's what He wants of me. This is really important for the life of a community of people. Consider how many people's emotional health and stability is often guided by how other people perceive them. When we do this, we are implicitly stating that people's judgment of me, if I can just you know, uh, bend their judgment the right way uh, to they finally accept me, then maybe I can feel like I'm, I matter. That I have purpose if I can bend other people's opinion to think highly of me. If I can be accepted by others and if I can impress them, then I will have arrived. Paul is rejecting that here. He says, only the Lord's judgment and acceptance of me is what truly matters. In context, if you read chapters 1 through 3, if you read it carefully, Paul in this church, he was being accused of not being wise enough not being a good speaker, not being a very powerful or charismatic presence up and against other leaders who were eloquent, good speakers, and who were more powerful, you know, had a more powerful presence about them. He said earlier in chapter 2, he said, all that matters for him was preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm called to be faithful to carry out that message Now, Paul is free of needing to live for the judgment of others and free to only live for Jesus. But by living for Jesus, as we will see, it actually drives Paul to serve others in the way that Jesus did, not the other way around. Because they were looking to be served by Paul in certain ways. And Paul was trying to restore them to a proper understanding of who Jesus is and how Jesus lived. And he's saying the way you're living is reflective of something that is not the way of Christ. And we'll get to that later. Secondly, and this is the most remarkable statement. I've read this, I can't tell you how many times. And it just always astounds me. Paul says, In fact, he says, "I don't even judge myself." Now, they had an opinion of Paul that he rejected. He was only concerned about the Lord's you know opinion of him. But consider this: this freedom. Paul says, "I don't even have an opinion of myself." I know, though, as he says in verse four, he says, "You know, my conscience is clear." Doesn't mean I'm you know there's not something wrong somewhere that I've missed. I'm, I'm aware of that, right? But consider that: do you have an opinion of yourself? When you're alone in your own mind, what are some of the thoughts that go in your own mind about yourself, right? Do you often sit underneath your own judgment in life? That, you know, if you were to speak out loud of, your opi- of, a, of the opinion you have about yourself, that, uh, you know, maybe it'll be this kind of woe is me, I'm, I'm a horrible person, or maybe you, you think a little too highly of yourself, whatever it may be. Paul says, I don't even have an opinion of myself. Like, I don't even think those thoughts. That's not, it's not like a part of how, my, my, my thinking process about life. It's, it's, it's Jesus. It's him crucified. It's the Lord who judges me. That's, he's my authority. That's what I am concerned in. In Jesus' you now we're not only free of living for the opinion uh, from the opinion and judgment of others, but we also can find freedom from our own opinions and judgments of ourselves because we are accepted In Jesus, we're already accepted in him. Such freedom, right, that kind of freedom is what led me to act like a fool in Costco for a few minutes, right, because I lost any kind of judgment over myself. Now, Jesus paid for sin. Jesus became sin on our behalf, says 2 Corinthians 5. When you have judgments against yourself, when you recognize your own weaknesses and you want to wallow in that, you need to remember that Jesus has already taken care of those things and he loves you regardless some of you just need to be reminded of the absolute central truths that you are loved by God. Through the work of his son, Jesus, you are loved. Know that. If you walked in and you just made so many fumbles this week, he loves you. He has never-ending grace for you to say, get up and walk. I love you. Stop casting judgment against yourself. The judgment was already cast on the cross and has been removed from you. I love you. You are my child. But if you look at what Paul is saying here, he knows, right? He knows that he has been accepted of him. So that's that's the question that continues to, to come in our faces. Do you have that kind of freedom? But let's talk about our church and this church. If we all lived by such freedom... That we are all accepted by Christ and thus are free from each other's opinion of one another and are free from the judgment of even yourself. If we all lived according to this, then as a community of Christians, we would accept anyone who comes through those doors that says, I am in need of grace. And we say, welcome to the club. We are too. And you're welcome here. Let me tell you about Jesus. Because I'm on the same playing field as you are too. I'm in need of grace. You're in need of grace. And only in Christ do we find forgiveness and salvation. As we move forward in this chapter, we will see that this is not exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. When you become a Christian, okay, and and you truly start living in light of being accepted by Christ, a, a community of Christians are brought together in one spirit. The scripture says it is the spirit of God in one spirit and in one baptism, we are brought together with Jesus at the center. So the need for forgiveness of sin or simply, we can say, being a human, all humans are in need of forgiveness of sin, right? It applies to us all. And yes, it bursts the doors open for anyone who comes seeking for grace and for Christ, right? There's remarkable unity in that if that remains our focus. There's remarkable unity in a church body if that remains our focus. That a Jesus centered gathering of people encircled around the cross and the empowerment of the Spirit that says all that we have here is Jesus, me, you, and we're together in this. When we take our eyes off Jesus, we start looking to the world around us and seeing. Uh, uh, the different values or worldviews or perceptions of our society around us. When we look around for ways in which this person or that person seeks acceptance or climbs the acceptance ladder in our society, and we allow those things to infiltrate into this place, the church, one of the first things I can guarantee will come about is division. Division will be found where we, we start valuing, looking for acceptance of one another outside of Christ. We start casting up judgments against one another outside of Christ, because this is what was happening in the church in Corinth. Let's walk through this in verse six. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos, that's one of his coworkers here, for your benefit that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. And then you will not take pride in one man over against another. Did you catch that? Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Paul, in the first few scriptures, uh, in the first few chapters, he, he quoted in this book, he quoted numerous scriptures uh, in chapter uh, 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 9, quoting from our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And he's generally saying, like, there's uh, this is something like this is what he's referring to here. Scripture does create some boundaries for us that so we are to live within. And you guys are finding things to live by beyond what has been written and provided for us. But here he is subtly reminding them of the gospel. He says, remember, we've received nothing from God that we were not given. It's by grace that we find salvation. It's not by any work that you did because Jesus worked it out for us on our behalf. And this is what their situation was. It was one of allowing their own cultural values of what makes someone great or important to enter into their church. Now, this was a speech-based culture. Ancient Rome was a speech-based culture, not much of the written word. Uh, rhetoric or the art of speaking was kind of really front and center. People would spend uh, their entire lives studying how to speak, right? It was really important because books were very expensive to write. Uh, you know, Microsoft Word did not exist 2,000 years ago. Uh, everything was handwritten, and literacy was uh, not common amongst people, Right, and so uh, the 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 values of that culture of that day, especially in a city like Corinth, the very Greek city, would have been looking for the best speaker, the one that was the most trained in the wisdom of the Greeks, and you know, in uh, Plato and Aristotle. and and, And you know, Corinth had this very old kind of history in Greek lore, right? That was very famous and infamous. And, and factions uh, are, are groups of people that often attach themselves to certain leaders that they considered had the most wisdom and kind of become their disciples in a way. And that was kind of happening within that church. Some people were attaching themselves to this speaker, some people attaching themselves to this speaker, and some people even were attaching themselves to Paul. Some people were attaching themselves to Apollos, just like the ones on the outside were in the broader city of Corinth. And Paul is saying, Really? And they're holding up, a lot of people are holding up Paul to that same judgment, saying, Paul, you're not as powerful as these people around here. You're not like them. Pfft, I don't have to listen to you, I don't have to listen to your message. And he's saying, guys, you, you're missing things. Like, stop. Like, you're missing some of the core basis of the good news of Jesus here. And he's addressing these things in the early chapters. So basically he's saying in verse 7, he's trying to bring them back to the basics. Let's, let's return to some basic core thinking here in verse 7. Uh, uh, who makes you different from anyone else? So what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Because remember, they were judging Paul by those other cultural standards. He says that is not where things begin, friends. Beginning of verse 7 is Paul's way of kind of saying who do you think you are here? Because what do you have in life that you didn't receive? And why are you living and why are you boasting as if you didn't receive anything? Now you may not think of, of pride as a root cause of, as, of what was going on initially, but consider this. We've talked about being free from the judgment of others, free from the judgment of self. But remember, they did not accept Paul because they brought this judgment on him. You know, you're not a powerful speaker, not very wise, and so forth. Um, and and uh, what Paul is, is trying to bring their attention to was to say um, that there is great arrogance in this. And it was based, uh, their fault was based on the arrogance that their acceptance of Paul is what mattered, that their own opinions is what truly mattered, their own thoughts is what truly mattered. And Paul says, well, who are you to have such bold, authoritative thoughts and judgments? Who do you think you are? Aren't you one that received grace? Aren't you one that received gifts, Right? So what drives you in your acceptance of others? When he says, what do you have that you do not receive? He's trying to remind them of their skin and bones and their humanity. In the gospel, he's saying, you guys are just people like me. You are living as if your judgment judging of me is some standard, some authoritative standard by which I am to live by that's reserved for God alone. It's arrogance. It's an upside down pride in many ways, right? But if you live for the opinion of self, the opinion of others, or you are just holding others to your own opinion, it's judging others and or yourself as if you are some kind of authority of God to do so. Or if you live for the opinion of others, you are treating their opinion as some kind of authority over you and that you'll truly find life if you meet those expectations. The flashlight of the gospel says, sorry, You're all sinners in need of grace, and only in Christ can you find what you're looking for. Only in Christ can you find forgiveness. And Paul now gets very sarcastic. I appreciate sarcasm. I know there's like two of you in this room that are sarcastic. That was sarcasm right there. There's many of you that are sarcastic in this room. This is what Paul says in verse 8. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. In these sarcastic comments, this is basically what he's trying to say. He says, in your pride, you are living as if you don't need anything, that you got it all figured out, that you have life in the full even now, that you have arrived at the fullness of knowledge of how to, you know, uh, uh, what you're holding other people's you know, judgment to others. You've arrived. Like, you guys are already there apparently, right? At least that's how you're, you're living. You're, you're living as if God has just granted you the fullness of everything you need, right? And, and Paul says, I, I, I need to be honest about this he he says this is how you're living and it's actually bursting apart your church it's dividing and breaking apart your church and you're in a a disunified congregation verse 9 for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession this gets really really good I love this stuff here I verse nine. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. Let's break this down. This is a really fascinating imagery from Paul. In the days of Roman Empire, this is a procession definition here. Whenever Rome would conquer a people, the Roman general would return home to Rome, and there would be a massive parade of celebration for the victory. You would have at the very front of the parade procession the, the, the kings, the, the emperor, the leaders, the general himself, the nobles, the, the very important people. Keep in mind, Paul just was mocking them as you're already kings and, and queens, right? You're already these noble people. He was mocking them. He's, he, he was basically saying you're, you're, you're living like those kings at the beginning of the procession. In Rome here. You are you're, you're you're living as if those are the very front receiving kind of all the glory here. That would be Caesar, right? The nobles, etc. and so forth. And then the army, but at the very end you would have the new slaves, the new conquered peoples. They would be chained up at the very end, kind of being dragged along, starved, half naked, beat up, stripped down is kind of the way to publicly shame them to say, ha, look at these people that Rome just got. That's right, these losers, look at them. They're getting dragged along and then they would find themselves inside of a Colosseum or the local, if it was in Rome, it would be the Colosseum and most of them would then die a death in the name of entertainment. As animals or their gladiators, it would just come in and wipe them out and they would um, essentially, yeah, be killed. There's nothing more shaming than to be at the end of a procession and Paul says guys that's where I'm at the Apostles like we're at the end of the procession you guys are living like you're at the front we're at the back here right Um, we're the ones that are getting beat up we're the ones that are dirty shamed and embarrassed and we'll put this together we can keep moving here in verse 10 he says we are fools for Christ but you are so wise his sarcasm continues. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. That's their situation. Right? Paul may be writing this letter on an empty stomach. Right? He may be hungry. He's fully aware of the costs of his calling to be an apostle. The cost of following Jesus for him. It was life at the end of the procession. Looking like fools for Christ. And yet this church is acting so wise in Christ. The apostles are weak, but man, they're acting so strong. Again, all this imagery is very real, but before Paul really had his own story in mind, I want to address another story that was in Paul's mind. Who else was displayed to the world as a fool, as weak, as hungry, as beat up, as brutally treated, as homeless, the one who curse yet bless others, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, as Jesus prayed, for those who were nailing his hands to the cross, Luke twenty three twenty four, The one who was persecuted yet prayed for those who persecuted him. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew five forty four. As Jesus said, when slandered, who stayed silent like a sheep before his shears? And who died the most horrific of deaths reserved for the worst of Roman society? publicly executed. What Paul is doing here is trying to restore what we can call a theology of the cross. That is, this is saying that Jesus, the God of all things, willingly took the low place of obedience to God, and he was not embarrassed by whatever it may have brought on him. For his calling, his faithfulness to God led him To his own death and suffering and shame for others. Jesus, the God of all things, in whom all things were created and in whom all things were made, he was willing to die for his own enemies, to suffer things that he didn't even do wrong for in our place. And so Paul is saying, yes, for him, his own faithfulness in Paul's life to Jesus has been very costly. Yet this church's faithfulness to their own cultural and societal values has done nothing but inflate their own arrogance and divide up their church. Just a few chapters before, Paul said this clearly in chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That may sound like content of preaching or something, like all you heard me talk about was Jesus and him crucified. It was more than that, though, because for Paul it was a way of life. For Paul, to be faithful to Jesus was to ensure that Paul didn't show up at that church when he led, but Jesus showed up through him when he got to that church. For Paul, he wanted to be dependent on a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, not in the demonstration of his own strength. More on that in a moment. In our passage in chapter four, he continues this line of thinking. He says, look at what the calling of Jesus has led me to suffer for. Church, it's faithfulness to Jesus that truly matters here. You're looking at the wrong things. The hard truth in all of this is this, to be a Christian is to die a death to yourself. Daily, every day. It is to remove self from the central goal of your life. And when Jesus is placed at the center, when the eternal spirit of God fills you, your emptiness then becomes full with the all-consuming love he has for God the Father and his willingness to suffer and to die for others, only if they may finally be reconciled back to God as his children. When that way of living becomes something you share in, when being faithful to Jesus leads you to love God above all things and to have the same love for those around around you as Jesus did, you only realize that you need more help from God's Spirit than anything in your own strength could possibly provide. But in doing so, in in catching such a life of the cross, you are discovering, as Jesus said continually, you are discovering a joy that no other life could possibly provide. Because in giving there is receiving. In the giving of yourself there is receiving the fullness of joy. You have finally found that all the things your heart has been searching for, that if there is a chance in your own weakness, that a demonstration of the power of God's Spirit may show up, you say, Great, I will gladly be weak like put myself aside and and try to vanish behind the cross if I can, if only Jesus Christ shows up because he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and the only hope for anybody that may listen to words coming out of my mouth. I want Jesus here, not Paul. Less of me and more of him, as John the Baptist once said. I'd rather be a fool for Christ than be lost in the game of constantly trying to prove myself before others. This is a freedom that Paul is talking about, that I had that glimpse of, of hopping around, barking like a dog in Costco. As we near the end of our time today, showing that you know sure he, he's, he's also not afraid to be truthful and, and 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 somewhat harsh if needed to be but still gentle the grace and truth paradox he ends with some verses here i'm not writing this to shame you but i'm warning you as my dear children even though you have ten thousand guardians of christ you do not have many fathers for in christ jesus i became your father through the gospel therefore i urge you to imitate me For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ. His way of life in Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. See that agreement? Teaching's one thing, talking about Jesus, showing up to church is one thing, saying the right words is one thing, your life matching what you claim to believe is a whole another thing. And Paul's saying, guys, I I, I think it's present in my life to some degree that's worthy of the invitation. And I want you guys to be reminded of that because you're claiming to believe in Jesus, but man, your church is a mess. You're divided up by all kinds of things. Do the things you claim to believe, does your life mirror that? Head to heart connection? Are you whole in Christ or is there still some division? I was so convicted this week over that that um, this morning, like I was preparing and I'm like, can I preach this? Like, is this a sermon that I can actually preach? <laughs> and I told my wife, I'm like, I, I feel a little convicted about this week and her quick response was, yeah, you grumbled a lot this week. And I was like, thank you. I, I knew that, you know, I was looking for a little pat on the back, like, it's okay, honey. It's Father's Day. It's like, no, you, you're right. You grumbled a lot. But I'm glad she said that because I'm like, thank you. I know I did. Like, I, I, I don't want to live as if this family's about me. Like, it's not about me here. Right? and I was trying to confess that this morning and this, this brings us back to Paul's comments right? a good steward is called to be faithful we must be truly shaped by the gospel shaped by the good news and this is the crux, the ending of our section I can call the worship team to come forward at this point in verse 18 he says some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking but what power they have Verse twenty: For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come with you? Uh, come to you with a whip, or in love and with a gentle spirit? What power is he talking about here? What power do these other leaders that are causing divisions in the church have? He says, I I, want to know, not the things they're talking about, I want to see their life, because that's their power. And I'm not seeing the power of Christ in their life, because the kingdom of God is not just flapping your gums. It's not just saying the right words and talking the right way. It's in power. It's when the Spirit of God takes over. That's when the kingdom of God shows up in our lives. Friends, if we want to have a powerful church, if we want to have a church that is filled with the spirit of God so that Wilmington looks upon us, they see much more than just a big old brick building on the corner. That they hear of the power that's taking place in this room, it's going to come. But we are not just people of talk, but we are people living this stuff out. Do you hear me, church? Do you need freedom this morning? Do you need freedom from the judgment of others? Freedom, are you enslaved by just constantly trying to impress other people? Do you need to be coming forward this morning for prayer? One more time, to be reminded that you are loved and accepted in Jesus Christ, and to embrace the freedom that comes with the gospel. Do you want spiritual power in your life? It begins with repentance. It begins by identifying the things that are not of Christ, they are not of the ways of Christ. They say, I want to glory in my weaknesses so that Christ may be strong in my life. We're going to have a time of prayer uh, during and at the end of this song. Um, if you're anywhere on that map and you need prayer, our elders will be up here to receive you. Um, be reminded of this. It's, Today can be the day when, if you've been walking with Jesus for for longer than I've been alive, or you're new in the faith or just kind of interested in whatever this stuff is about, Matthew 10 39 said this from Jesus' words himself. He said, For whoever finds their life will actually lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You can lose your life this morning, all over again, or for the very first time. I'm going to pray for that, for you right now. Jesus, I pray. I know it's a long, longer scripture this morning, but Lord, I pray that the Spirit, you would show up in your people this morning because you are the very presence of God in our life. You are the mediator who brings us your presence into our hearts, into our lives. Whatever words you may have been speaking into the hearts or minds of those in these pews this morning, I pray that they in boldness and great courage can respond. Give them the power to respond, Lord. We want to be a church that is not just talk, but is full of power. Jesus, shape us into your image. Help us to lose ourselves that we may find you, Lord, and truly then find the fullness of life. Lord, we we want to turn and repent to where we've made things about ourselves all over again. We want to repent to our families, repent to our friends. Lord, we want our lives to be you and people see us that they're going to see you, Lord. Help us not to be about the things that this world is about, but help us to be shaped by the cross, Lord. Please make this church weak, Lord, that you may be strong here. We love you, Lord.